you can get some Reflectix, even some of those $10 um, sunshades that you have. You can cut that and you can make something or you can just use a wool sock and keep the water in a wool sock. But you want to, if you're just using a regular Nalgene bottle, you want to make sure that's insulated. They have the Hydroflask bottles. They've even made a lighter one. I haven't been too impressed with it. But also, Hydroflask bottles are going to be heavier. Heavy. Your water's going to stay hot. But it's going to be more weight that than carrying just an Nalgene bottle and a koozie. Stump, do you still have your sock with the duct tape wrapped around it? You had that like awesome system that worked. Yeah, man. Karen stole my thunder. <laughs> yeah, that's my yeah. that's my strategy. I, I use old wool socks. I wash them, of course, and uh, <laughs> but you wouldn't know it. Like it, I, I got to tell you a story. Can I do a little spur story here? Yeah, I, I'm Go starting ahead. a new podcast, and it's called "It Smells Like a Search and Rescue" because after the last <laughs> rescue, I went in my truck. <laughs> Man, was it bad. It's like I had three oh, yeah. of those green pine air fresheners and that wasn't even cutting it. My mom's like, what the hell? So yeah, smells like a search and rescue. That's coming up. Um, but yeah, I, I, I used the wool sock and then I duct taped the hell out of it. So it's really insulated. And when I go out, I, I basically throw in boiling water. And uh, yeah. by the time I'm yeah. out there, you know, it's it's tolerable and um, that works. And I also put the Nalgene's closest to my trunk, my body, and then I put my down puffy around it so that it's near my body heat. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. So welcome to Sounds Like a Search and Rescue number 32. Fantastic. 32. Hitting the 30s. That's right. That's when you're depressed that you're not in your 20s anymore, right? Exactly. Yeah. You're starting to think about like, oh shit, I got no money saved for retirement. I'm screwed. <laughs> the dirty 30s. <laughs> oh, that's the truth. That exactly. is a truth. Exactly. But um, <laughs> Stomp, I, got a, I have an apology to make um, about last episode because I, I messed up. Yeah, what is it? The audio. I, I'm so I'm just like gutted about it because it, I just felt like it sounded horrible. I thought that was just a special on-location effect that you added. Yeah, I know. You told me to lie to the audience, but I just, I, 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 for whatever reason, I didn't, I switched from my regular microphone to, it just picked up like the microphone from my computer, so it is what yeah. it is, I guess. Hey, it happens. I tried to salvage it, but I think you sound okay. I mean, I think the listeners will forgive you. Yeah. yeah. I hope. So we got a busy show tonight, so we're going to be like probably. I guess this one's going to hit the two-hour mark, but um, yeah, I literally Content. just got done with some social media drama. So do you guys want to hear the the nonsense? Oh, yeah, man, let's do it. I have a feeling I might know what it is, but I was too busy getting lost in oh, nice Apple so well so Karen's here tonight we'll introduce her in a minute but all right so uh, Stomp do you care about this or do you not care yeah I'm curious I, I yeah throw it at me I've got uh, a drop with uh, our voiceover guy waiting to go which we haven't used yet so, right, so I'm all in all right so that's why I'm doing this then that's my that's my story but <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. We're about to serve up some tasty hiking drama. 
So I've been, I haven't been on social media nearly as much as I used to be. So uh, unfortunately, I went on like literally right before the show. <laughs> And it's kind of a funny story, so I figured I'd share. So I was, so my brother and sister-in-law came with, uh, they had a new puppy, and it's like a little three-pound, I don't know. So I was like, oh, I'll post a picture of the puppy on social media and whatever. Okay. And foolishly, I then was like, let me look at the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue Call is about to happen Facebook page. <laughs> like, and then I get on there, and there had been some drama earlier in the week, so Do you know anybody that's been involved in hiking has seen this picture of Killington where it's like snow on the top and then foliage in the bottom? Have you, you guys have seen that photo, right? Yeah, I just saw one in Mount Washington too. Yeah, yeah. So somebody on the social media Facebook page that's related to this podcast had like they they post I guess they posted this picture around to a bunch of different places and they would say like, oh, it's Mount Washington. And then Half the people would be like, that's oh. an amazing photo. And then the other half are like, that's Killington. It's not Mount Washington. So this has been going on. So that photo's been going around for <laughs> oh, what, five, six years uh, now? Ten years. So whatever. So serious? I always see this and I'm just like, oh, whatever. So apparently somebody posted a, a post on our Facebook page with that picture on a T-shirt. And they were like, we're selling it for $9.99 or whatever. So it's like ridiculous. So that... The original photographer, apparently because this photo was going around and somebody was representing that they took it, you know, they're basically lying about it. That photographer posted in some other big social media group about like, hey, this person's going around stealing my photo. And somebody was like, oh, yeah, it's the sounds like a search and rescue page that's like conspiring to do this. So somebody had sent me a message and they were like, hey, Mike, somebody, they're talking about your group on this page. So I'm like, all right, whatever. So I go on there and like somebody had, to our credit, somebody had reported this post as being like against community standards or whatever. So I deleted it. And then I go over to this other page and they're all like, yeah, that group is like, you know, the admin's not going to like remove it. They're a bunch of evil people. So I just went on there and I was like, hey, just a heads up, the photo's gone. I don't know anything about this. Thank you. So fast forward to, so that happened like, I don't know, Tuesday, Wednesday night. So fast forward to tonight, again, I see a photo in our group about a picture of Mount Washington and it's like the same thing. It's like snow and then foliage or whatever. And then somebody's like, hey, this there's a screenshot of this other person who's saying that like our group is like stealing professional photographers photos and representing it and that it's like a concerted organized effort and i'm like so what the hell yeah so it was in this other big group that's run by wmur so it's like a hundred thousand people in the group and i'm like are you gonna be oh so like the word is spreading because of us apparently there's no such thing as bad press oh well that's true because i did get like 20 new members requests or whatever there you go so i'm like i'm like all right i'm gonna be a mature adult i'm gonna reach out to the person that like tagged us who's not in our group and I'm going to just sort of explain to her the situation. So we have lost our ability to communicate to each other. Like we've just completely lost our ability to communicate. So I reach out to her 
And she's apparently a professional photographer, and I get it. Like, it's your intellectual property, and you don't want people misrepresenting. But she doesn't have anything to do with either one of these photos, by the way. She's just sort of like the white knight has has rolled in and said, like, I'm going to go after the sounds like a search and rescue stupid Facebook page. Like, So I reach out to her, and I sort of explain the situation. I said, look, I understand the photo's been going around. It was reported. I took it down. It was like a day or two it took me because I'm not looking at Facebook that often. So <laughs> she basically is like, why are you talking to me? Like, you know, and I was like, I just want you to like stop harassing the group. And she's like, you're harassing me. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to explain the situation. So <laughs> I guess she was, just wasn't having it. So apparently our Facebook group is conspiring to steal photos of – mountains now so I yeah but that's like the membership is just posting that correct exactly that's what i said i'm like i'm not inadvertently i said if i get something that if i know something's obviously i'll i'll delete it but like i can't control i'm like you need to like directly reach out to the people that are doing that behavior oh dude but that's just i I guess that didn't resonate the zuck the zuck is coming after us man but i don't know so (laughs) so, it sounds like my classroom almost every day but i just i bet the professional photography community in new hampshire i'd like to speak to the manager and (laughs) i just want to let you know that like if i find that there's anybody misrepresenting photos in any any respect, I will take care of it. But like, if if you happen to be the manager of the professional photographer group of New Hampshire, like, and that's not a group, I'm just making that up. But like, I'll, I'll be nice, I swear. So I'll get my mom on it because she's deep into the photography subculture, All right? Stop. And uh, especially up here, so I'll, I'll tell her when she hears this, I'll protect me. Let her know. Yeah. I'll sick her on them. That dumbass Facebook group. Burn it. Wow. I got to throw it in yeah, the trash. Yeah, it's like social media is so bizarre, right? It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so bizarre. But I have no one to blame but myself because I've unleashed these idiots on the world and now I got to deal with it. Yeah, so what's the strategy to correct it? You're just going to ignore it? Yes. Pretend like it never Perfect. happened and, and hope that it goes away. Yeah, yeah, works. That works usually most of the time. (laughs) Anyway, so that's the social media story. Um, Good. The other thing I had before we get into the show details is we almost killed Nobby Hikes last week. Well, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of elderly people getting in trouble out there. Oh, (laughs) sorry, Nobby. Just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> why you, yeah, why don't you explain? Because it, this is your mishap that you got him into. So you survived. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I did survive. But so he hiked with me. Uh, we did that like that finishing hike where we went from Mount Pemi to the Flume Slide to Cannon, which is like a twenty mile hike. It's like eight thousand feet of gain. And I did Pemi by myself. But we Mark, so Mark Lindeberg, Nobby hikes. I'll link his um, YouTube channel um, on the show notes. But he was like, I'll join you for the flume slide and cannon. And I was like, dude, well, we got to hustle because we got to meet Stomp and um, Casey and Nick at like 1230. So we basically had about <laughs> four and a half hours to get from the flume parking lot to Lafayette campground to start up high cannon. So yeah. we had to hustle. And I think he bonked about halfway through the flume slide. Because it was, I mean, we were moving, we were cruising, and I mean, we were in uh, no rush. 
We were just sitting there. It didn't matter, but I, I get it. You get that abstract pressure. I felt bad. I was yeah. like, I, I don't want them to wait. And I because originally <clears throat> I told you guys twelve o'clock, and then like it slipped. We were like, all right, we're going to do twelve thirty. But he, Nobby, sucked it up, and he, uh, you know, he got a second and third oh, wind, and he know, did. made yeah, it he's to you guys on time. Solid, but, solid hiker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We didn't really talk about your trip, though, did we? We haven't. I had a we to. we have. Yeah, we'll. Um, we have. We a little have a section later? later on in the show, yeah. Oh, good. I haven't even looked at this the scripts lately. I've been so preoccupied with a million things. I apologize. It's been That's a busy fine. season. Yeah, I'll drive. I can drive. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, sponsors and coffee talk stomp. Anything there? Yeah. Well, Sarah donated three. Sarah without an H, as I like to say, Sarah. Thank you so much. Chris Haley donated three. Thank you, Chris. Um, and of course, we have our primary sponsor, which is at Reckless Brewery, um, the best food and craft beer um, north of the notch within minutes of Franco Di Notch and some of the best hiking around. I just wanted to let you know, I have a list of um, some of the places that you can get Reckless now. And uh, let me just run through it quick so you guys know. So we have uh, Local Basket in Concord, uh, Beverage Craft Beer and Soap Company in Wolfborough, Chase Street Market in Plymouth, Capital Beverages in Concord, The Beer Store in Nashua. Uh, they're getting around, aren't they? Burt's yeah, Better Beer and Hooks It. Case and Keg, Meredith, and then Franconia Market, Franconia, and Littleton Brews in Littleton. So they're getting their stuff out there. So keep a lookout for the uh, the labels and support Reckless. I'll have to check the beer store in Nashua um, on my way home after teaching that, teenagers all day. That's near you? Yeah, I, I work in Tingsboro, so. Gotcha. That's awesome. What uh, what is that store that sells beer and soap? I, that that sounds. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> um, let me pull up that name again here. Um, uh, where is it? Beer. Oh, Beverage Craft Beer and Soap Company, Wolfborough. Well, it's in Wolfborough. That explains it. Very yeah. eclectic crowd yeah. over there. Hmm. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I wonder. I'll have to look that. <laughs> send me cool that info because I want to look. At, we won't. I don't want to get into a whole thing here. But like, I'm curious. Is it like, is this? Does the soap have beer in it, or is the soap like? Is it just two separate? Pro- I don't know. Oh, just send me the details. It's I'm probably, gonna do some research and I'll figure yeah, it out. I'm guessing it's two separate products, but you never know. Yeah. That would be a that would be perfect for me and Mrs. Mike to go to because she loves buying that like fancy soap, and then I, I would like to get in the beer. <laughs> A romantic night. Uh, yes, that'd be a big date night. Um, <laughs> all right, so we got to transition to the show summary, but there's one thing that there's one other thing going around social media that I wanted to address with both of you. Yeah, this has been taken off on social media. Karen, do you know what I'm going to talk about, Karen? Do you have a I guess? I have a feeling it has to do with lovely cell phones. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So, do you want to um, explain to Stomp what what's going viral right now on social media? Hmm. Apparently, people are saying that if you get lost or you get hurt, you should change your voicemail on your cell phone, um, leaving messages of where you are, your location, things like that. So if somebody calls your phone, then they're going to be able to get the information out to you. But they left out, you need to have service to do that. And I believe that you can 
get 911 even when you have limited service, which would probably be the best thing to do, but, you know, yeah. internet. Oh, so that's interesting. So it, the concept being your voice message is going up into the cloud off of your phone so that it would just be accessible whenever somebody needs it during a rescue? I guess. Yeah. It didn't make any sense to me, but people keep passing it around. I'm like, yeah, it makes, it makes sense, people. I guess. I don't know. Like, uh, to me, I'm like, okay, if you, so you need Wi-Fi or cell connection to change your voicemail on your phone. Why would you choose to update your voicemail and not call 911? Well, maybe you only have that, 1% battery left and you're like, oh, hell, I can't do this again. What's my best alternative? Yeah. I don't know. So, but I mean, bottom line <laughs> is you should, you should never be in a situation where you rely on your cell phone to get yeah. to you somewhere but um yeah. everybody's so i think at first it was like a good public service announcement and a great idea and then the hiking community got a hold of it and now they're all <laughs> it's the worst idea ever so <laughs> huh. that's interesting yeah. all right so we'll go to the show summary here so you, you ready stop yeah let's get into this all right winter is coming the words of house stark of winterfell these words are spoken before the arrival of the long winter season across Westeros. This is also what goes through the minds of every New Hampshire hiker when the beauty of fall foliage changes to late fall gray in the mountains. The transition to winter happens quickly with snowfall hitting the high peaks as early as October. As this change happens, inexperienced hikers spread questions throughout the hiking communities on social media in an effort to learn how to survive in the tough winter environment. Tonight, we're joined by our friend Karen to unpack the mysteries of winter hiking. We expect this to be a multi-part series covering everything you need to know in order to get out and experience the magic of winter hiking in the White Mountains. During the show, we will also talk with Karen about her experience as a volunteer in the White Mountains, and we will probably also learn a little bit about what it's like working in retail selling hiking gear. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right, that was a mouthful. Mm. <laughs> nice writing. You're yes turning into an author. Yeah, I was inspired. So, um, so beer talk. We're still in sober October. Yeah. So I got nothing. Used to losing weight, Tom. Oh my God, I'm down ten pounds, man. Ten pounds, and it's people are noticing it too. It's funny. Like even my wife, who never looks at me, pays attention to me. She said. You look like you're slimming down. <laughs> but it's been great. Yeah. I actually don't miss it at all, which is fantastic. And I have definitely more energy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, not, yeah. I, I'm actually drinking tonight. I am drinking a regular Coke. So I'm going to stay up a little bit. So it's not really like I might as well nice. just drink a beer. But this is just shit. But it actually tastes really good. So, huh. So what's going to happen you? after Sober October? You're going to keep it up or drinking again? (laughs) You hit all the craft breweries, you hit all the breweries, you hit the food trucks, and you enjoy yourself. Yeah, Yeah, let's let's hit all the stores with uh, Reckless beer in it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Make a a a truckload of beer and soap. (laughs) What about you, Karen? What are you drinking tonight? Anything good? I'm also sort of a forced sober October, so. I have kombucha, which actually does have like 0.5 alcohol in it. So I guess 
it doesn't go with the rules, but I'm making it the rules. So that's what it is. What is so? This is one of those things too, where like I've definitely heard people talk about this a bunch of times, but I never stop to ask anybody. So it's like past the point where I can know what it is. Yeah, it's fermented tea. Oh, got it. Interesting. Like other stuff added in. Huh. All right. Can you? Do you have to like make it, or can you buy it somewhere? There are people who make it, but I've heard it very interesting stories of people who've made kombucha. So I don't think I should do that in my basement. Okay. Hmm. Explode your basement. <laughs> All right. So uh, recent hikes. Stomp, do you want to kick it off? Have you been out hiking at all? The one that comes to mind is the Algonquin Trail. I tried to do that a year or two ago and um, <clears throat> from the beginning of the trail, and I failed because it was so wet. This uh, this trail has a series of ledges that probably ranges a quarter mile or more, and it was so wet it was just too slippery. And there's a couple of exposed spots with good 50-foot falls, so that didn't happen. So I, I tried a different tack this time. I went into Smartsbrook, which is down in Waterville, or towards Waterville, down on Route 49. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is a little funky tonight. And um, my plan was to bushwhack up to Black Mountain. I know there's like 100 Black Mountains in New Hampshire, but this one is um, proximate to Thornton, and uh, it sandwiches in between Sandwich and Thornton, more or less. So I bushwhacked up to Black Mountain, and then from there, I took Algonquin Trail, over the ledges and straight across to uh, Sandwich Dome and then back down Smartsbrook Trail, which is like, I think it was probably like a 10-mile 10, 10 day or something like that, a couple-mile bushwhack. But I got to tell you, <clears throat> it, it, it's my number one. It's the most beautiful place in the whites. Um, I'll tell people that, hoping that you experience it. But I didn't post pictures of it on purpose because <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm so excited to tell people about this place, but I don't want to. It's just literally that good. Um the thing about it is it's an impossible car spot because you need a car that can get down Sandwich Notch Road, which is mm-hmm. super intimidating. That's why I decided to do the bushwhack. And that worked out perfect, you know, if you're up for that. The car spot's like, that's a tough one. So good luck. How, if you're how long do of a road walk is it if you were just going to walk the road? Uh, probably at least, I don't know, I guess five miles, four or five miles. Oh, right. Um, so it's not even really feasible then. Yeah, if you have a low car, um, anything lower than like a, a sedan, forget it. A sedan would even be questionable. But um, yeah, great stuff. How about you? Yeah, you were uh, you were texting me like during that hike. You were like, "This is the most amazing place. This is awesome. Oh, this is well, epic." I'm, so I'm telling you, even the the first half, the first time I tried this trail, when I t- bailed and turned back, I was blown away. It has that yeah. quality of a trail that's never been walked on, super narrow path, vivid greens, and then the views are just mind-blowing up there. And not only that, it's like you get past the ledges, it had to be two miles of flat, boulderless, rockless pine path for, for like two miles. You're just walking on this- it's like Pacific Northwest. It was unbelievable. You could tell that people visit this place quite a bit that know about it, and like- uh, you know, I get that same feeling up at like Goose Eye. You like the people that really know the really pristine places because it's maintained without a doubt. Uh, yeah, can't say enough about it. Beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I had asked you. So, you, what about you, Mike? Anything beyond your 
Triple Crown? N- nothing, <laughs> uh, nothing besides that one. So I just had uh, what day was that? Was it Sunday that we met up, Stomp? So we had, yeah. we hadn't hiked in a long time together. So that was the first time yeah. we had hiked probably in about a year, I think. Right? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That yeah. was good. Yeah. So it was a it's a long hike. I um I I got up to the Flume parking lot at like six, I think. Yeah. Six in the morning, something like that. So I started with a headlamp. And um, those tunnels under 93, uh, the flume. Creepy, I, I switched right? up the route a little. I, originally, I was going to do like a, I was going to start by exit 33, but I ended up going up to the flume gorge and went up and back down yeah. that trail out of the flume gorge. And then I didn't have any gear with me, really. Just I brought like a, a water and a, a cliff bar to have up on the cliffs. But Pemi was beautiful. Huh. And then I just came back down. Met Mark. We hustled up to the the flume slide. That was like soaking wet the whole time, and then oh, dude, the whole day was down. Yeah, yeah, it was like, and we saw a ton of people coming up on Liberty Springs. Yeah, on the way down, and that was nice. It was wet, and then walking on the the Franconia bike path was cool. And then we saw <laughs> you guys, and then. That was that was fun. The cannon was awesome. It was amazing. It was funny seeing all the people up there. Um, and Nick was so bent on getting a cinnamon roll up there, but they didn't have him because it was the last day. So he was yeah. sort of pissed. It was funny. But uh, parking was a nightmare. We got there. Casey and I got there an hour and a half early. And thank God we did because you couldn't park anywhere. And then we sent a text to Nick saying, hey, forget uh, Lafayette Campground because there's nothing. So he went to the tram and walked the two miles on the bike path. And I keep on getting these texts from him. I'm like, damn, this bike path is longer than I thought. (laughs) Yeah. But you guys came walking out together. It was great. Yeah, it was perfect timing. So, and it was a, a cannon I haven't been on. So I was really impressed with how how nice that was. Yeah. And then that overlook as you're heading down Kinsman Ridge Trail. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I've avoided Cannon just because I've held that as the last peak for the 4,000 footers. But yeah, it was a good it was a good hike. And, you know, I got a million people to thank for, for all this, both of you, you and Karen. I mean, Karen, you definitely hooked me up with, like, good gear advice. And uh, mm. I try. Know. Yeah, exactly. You, you gave me a stove, too. I owe you for... Uh, for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hmm. that. Yeah, I used that. I used that up in... Um, Mahusik Notch over this over the summer, so it's good. But That's what great. about you, Karen? Any any recent hikes for you? Um, I've mostly been doing a lot of local stuff. I did Wachusett last week, and I thought it was not going to be busy. There were like three school groups, bunch of bird watchers. It, the summer was crowded. I'm like, this is not what's supposed to be like on a weekday. You expect that on a Saturday, but I just sat in the ski lift for. Um, about like an hour or two because nobody went to the ski it's like oh there's a mountain and they forget that it's a whole ski mountain mm-hmm. so that was nice mm. and then um today i was investigating some conservation land out in north central mass which was kind of nice except it's where route two becomes one lane and getting off and on a one-lane highway is not fun mm-hmm. yeah. the hiking was beautiful but <laughs> Just getting there and getting back was not fun. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Moving on to segment one. So I want to introduce our friend Karen here. So um, I guess maybe I can start, Karen, and then you can you can talk a little bit about yourself. But I just sure. 
you know, as far as how we met, I think we just met over social media and then we were in a couple of groups yeah. together. And then um, you work, I'm allowed to say this, right? You work at REI. Yeah. yeah. So Karen works at REI. So I think one time I went in there and introduced myself and then, you know, I would go into the REI store and, you know, whenever I saw Karen, we, we, we would talk and then we've camped together a couple times um, up at my uh, Nana and Papa's place up in Maine. So, you know, we've gotten to know each other quite a bit over the years. And I always sort of look at Karen as somebody that's really good um, around giving gear advice. I think, you know, you've been involved in volunteering and you've, um, you know, led different AMC hiking groups and whatnot. So I wanted to have you here to talk a little bit about your volunteering experience and then also um, to just start off with the sort of the winter hiking discussion so that uh, we have um, a lot of different perspectives. So um, so with that, I'll shut up. Karen, do you want to just introduce yourself, <laughs> talk a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm Karen. That's my actual name. Hi, Karen. Besides working at REI and volunteering. I'm also, oh, and hiking, because I do that too. I also teach at Gray Little Technical High School. You know one of my kids. Oh, yes. Which was really funny getting that text from you. I'm like, huh? What? <laughs> what? Huh? It's a small world, right? It's a very, very small world. And um, I've been there. This is my seventh year there. I absolutely love it. Um, the kids are great. Um, it's really just a great experience. I did some stuff with our outdoor club because we do have an outdoor club as well. But the way that, that it works is we have to drive the kids in a bus. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not about driving a bunch of teenagers in a bus, sometimes an hour or more. I don't know if I could do that. But whenever they need somebody extra... I'll, I'll go out and I'll help them. Great, great. And um, I guess just from the beginning, like how did you get into hiking to uh, to start with? I kept looking back and I keep going back to I wanted to do more outdoor stuff. And back when we had snow with winter in Massachusetts, I was doing some cross-country skiing at the Western Ski Track. I had gone up to um, Great Glen and did some cross-country skiing then. And I think that I really got into hiking more to stay in shape for cross-country skiing, which I haven't done since I started hiking because I've had so much fun hiking. But that that was just the inroad right there. I um, met some friends. I volunteered also at the ATC a few times for a couple of their hikes, just, you know, helping out, getting, helping get people organized, keeping people on track. I've counted through hikers, which I thought was always really fun to like see all these through hikers come in and, you know, hear their stories, you know, there's the bathroom, you know, you can take a picture over here, that type of thing. (laughs) And I hooked up with um, a group called trail dames and the person who I got in contact with was, was from Maine. So I started hiking with them. I started doing a lot of hiking in West Virginia, in Virginia, Maryland. Um, had a lot of fun with my friends. And then eventually I decided I'm going to go up to the Whites. Um, and it just, it, that's pretty much what it was. But I have done some hiking in Montana 
in Tennessee. And I think the hiking in Montana was like, okay, I want to do this. I want to keep doing this. Yeah. And do you, uh, so you started off by volunteering with the ATC, but you got involved with like the, the AMC and trail steward yes. program as well. Yeah. I, um, have volunteered with the AMC as a hike co-leader and I did a couple of, um, hikes with them, a couple of beginner hikes and, um, two beginner backpacks as well. And I've also done a lot of work with our spring and winter hiking program, which this year and hopefully next year we'll be able to do it in person. But the good thing about particularly the winter hiking program is that we spend a lot of time preparing people to go outside and be prepared in the the cold weather and the snow. We start them off small, like Blue Hills, Wachusett, some smaller mountains in New Hampshire. They go to Cardigan. So it's really a chance for you to get some experience with somebody who knows what they're doing, who knows how to work with the temperatures and the conditions. And it's been um, really great working with that. And I also do a spring hiking program. I usually do the L&T and I've actually had people talk to me. It's like, oh, you're the one who taught us how to poop in the woods. So that is how people seem to know me. Um, I've <laughs> My last one I did was a layering workshop for the spring hiking program and, t- and telling them, especially in the springtime, as we're going from cold to um, warmer weather, sometimes within the same day or an hour, that this is what you need to do to get yourself ready for everything. Got it. And then I started working with Forest Service. Got it. Now, who, um, w- with these hiking groups, who's the typical audience? Do they get a lot of, like, um, demand for this? And is there big crowds, or is it is it pretty sparse? We've gone down to about 60 people, but usually it's about 100 And these are people who want to get more of a foot in the outdoors, people who've had some experience, but they haven't had experience in the whites. So they want to go with a group that's going to help them um, learn how to navigate the local terrain in the area. But it does seem to be a lot of people who have that interest um, and have done some hiking themselves as opposed to complete until newbies, which we have gotten, but, the people who join have a desire to go out and um, enjoy the outdoors. Cool. And then as a trail steward, have you, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, is that, do do you see a lot of people that just head up and they're just completely ill prepared or is it uh, more of a mix or what do you, what are your thoughts around being a trail steward? Cause I I just always am curious about your perspective. Yeah, I've seen a complete mix of people. One of the first year that I did it, it was when they had a through hiker who saved the section hikers along Franconia Ridge. They got lost. He put them in their tents. They were hypothermic. And I went that that Sunday. I was there at Old Bridal Path. I was in every piece of clothing that I had because it was chilly and there was snow at the top. And there were people who were coming up and like these little tiny shorts and tennis shoes and string backpacks. And I kept trying to counsel them because we can't tell people that, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. We can just tell them that here are the dangers that you might face. You know, think about this, think about that, telling them how long a rescue is possibly going to take. And we hope that they're going to make a proper decision. And there are some people 
who do end up making that proper decision, especially with the parking situation, people have found that there are different ways to get up to Lafayette. And they started going those different ways. They've changed their trips. I've told some people, you know what, go up to Lonesome Lake. And you can see Franconia Ridge from there. You can get some goodies. It's not that bad of a hike. And now with dogs, I always ask people, are, are you prepared for your dog? Do you have something for your dog's feet? Do you have a carrier for your dog? Mm-hmm. And I think that was after the whole Odin incident. So what we've done is we take a look at what's happening and then we make our adjustments to it. But I've had an absolute blast working Um, I mean, volunteering with the Forest Service. I've also volunteered as a backcountry steward. And those are people who go out. We clean up tent sites. We clean up fire rings. I've broken up several fire rings. There's a whole process of dealing with that. We broke down a fireplace um, on the way to Hancock, which I'm sorry that we did that. But you're not supposed to have that there. Yeah. It was like right off the trail. It was a little ways off the trail, Mm -hmm. but they must have spent a couple of years making that. And I felt bad. But at the same time, I said, you know what? You've probably got a fireplace at your house. You don't need to go out into the wilderness and build your own fireplace. Hmm. But there are a lot of illegal campsites that are out there. And we've spent some time going in and cleaning up those sites. I've also worked as a bear educator, which is more of a human educator, because everybody everybody comes in, all right, do you have bear spray? Do you have bear spray? We don't have bear spray. And you don't need bear spray. You need common sense. You need to know how to protect your food. You need to know not to leave your pack unattended, especially in the PEMI, because there is a bear who has stolen a few packs. You need to know how to act in bear country. Because if you know how to act, there won't be any bear incidences. So trying to get people to understand that sometimes is a little hard. And especially one thing we we would do is we go to different campsites and we give people a little warning. And you look at some of these campsites and people don't put anything away. And I'm like looking at that. I'm like, oh, bears are going to have so much fun here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well. Luckily, I haven't had any run-ins, but no, I get your point is you do see more and more. Like, I think I saw, you know, I saw a picture of somebody setting up their tent on, you know, alpine vegetation above treeline yeah. a couple of weeks ago. You see people just abandoning tents. I think I saw a picture of somebody abandoning a tent off of uh, the Madison, you know, campsite over mm-hmm. the weekend. So there's all kinds of crazy things that go on. So you must see it all as a trail steward. Yeah. And you, I mean, again, we, you know, we have to take that diplomatic tone. We can't tell people that they can't do anything, but we can also contact the proper authorities and the Forest Service Leos to help us out if we do see that there is an issue. And I think a lot of it is part of that education. The, the education is out there, but it's more of the people who already are thinking about it, who already know about it, who are taking advantage of it, not the general public who needs to know about things like Leave No Trace or the 10 Essentials. And if there was some way of just getting more education out there, I think we might have fewer problems, especially with people um, leaving trash and 
other stuff along the trail. I've heard, I haven't been up much this year, so I haven't seen a lot of it, but I have heard that some people need a little work with the L&T up there. Hey, Karen, have you had to deal with any um, of these illegal prospecting sites like quartz and stuff like that or... No, what we do is we just when we have our backcountry trips, we just go in and we clean up the site. We naturalize it as much as possible and then move on. There was one trip where somebody did get a ticket on their tent, but by the time the group had come back, the tent was gone. So somebody Mm -hmm. had gotten the message. But I haven't had to deal, at least in the trips that I've been on, with telling people you need to move because you're in an illegal campsite. And sometimes it's hard to tell in illegal camps where, where it's illegal to camp versus where it's legal to camp. There is that very thin um, forest protection zone. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of areas, it's clearly marked that you cannot camp somewhere. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then from your perspective, if, if somebody did want to get in, involved in volunteering, like where would they start or you know, what are your thoughts on like the, the areas within the volunteer c- community where they need the most help? Um, for the Forest Service, you can go to volunteer.gov and plug in the information. And there are plenty of things that people can do, including locally. Um, some of the National Historic Parks also do look for volunteers. And even if they don't have a hiking aspect, they can still get their foot in and volunteer with the different services. The AMC has a lot of hike leadership classes. I know that, um, and I wish I knew more about the program. They have um, a program that helps train leaders for youth groups so that you have people who are trained to go out and help different groups. I've seen them take kids from Boston up to the whites in on backpacking and backpacking and hut to hut trips, and the kids absolutely love it. So there are lots of opportunities that are out there. You just have to sometimes you have to do a little searching for them, mm-hmm. but there are opportunities that are available for, for people. If you want to be a hike leader, if you want to volunteer with the Forest Service, either, either as a trailhead stored, backcountry stored, um, bear educator. There are plenty of opportunities that are out there. You just have to look for them. Got it. What do you think? What is it about your personality where you're you're energized by? And, and both of you, both of you, you know, give a lot back um, in, in your time around volunteering. And I'm 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 more of a taker than a giver, I guess. But um, or for now, I'll get there someday. But what do you think it is about you know your yourself that that gets energized by volunteering like this? I guess I just love seeing people go out there happy. Um, I especially love to see younger people go out there. I have some students who are working on their 48 right now. I had a student who was also working with the flags on the 48, and I have no idea why people are knocking on my door. Um, (laughs) I've had, um, you have all these people who are just so happy and it's almost like you get some energy from that. And then you have those people who you're, you're trying to counsel and some of that energy goes away. But I think it's just that you're able to do all these things and help all these people that really do um, make it enjoyable. Got it. And then from your perspective, um, there's a, obviously there's always a lot of talk around expanding access to the outdoors and how do we get more people involved in hiking and, um, 
you know, there's a lot of topics around that. What is your, I guess, what's your experience or what's your perspective on sort of some of the best ways to expose people who might not otherwise get involved in hiking? You know, how, how do you do that introduction? You have to start locally. I I mean, for me, and especially with the work in the AMC, you don't take one of our hiking programs and just go up to the whites. You do a lot of local things to get prepared to deal with a hike in the whites. Um, if there was more access to education, if education was maybe in community centers or in towns, if they're offering like an extension course in an introduction to hiking, I think that would be good. You don't have to go with groups like the AMC or go to classes at REI to get information about hiking. I think if you expanded it more, it would help a lot of people. In terms of getting people in the whites, I think there there are a lot of issues that people don't talk about. They talk about peripheral, peripheral issues that really don't have anything to do with access. But they don't talk about the fact that there's not a lot of public transportation up to the whites. And if you and a lot of people in Boston don't own cars. So unless you're able to rent a car or you're able to carpool, you're not going to be able to get up there. Lodging is expensive unless you're camping or you're backpacking. It's expensive to stay in a lot of places. Um, people have other things. People might have child care issues that they want to get up there. But if you have a child you have to take care of, you either have to bring them up or you have to find somebody who is there. And I'm going to and say it, gear is expensive. Yeah. And while there are places where you can get used gear or um, lower price gear, it's still expensive, especially for winter hiking. And if you're not able to access that gear, it's possible that especially in the winter, that's going to put you in danger. But a lot of things that people are talking about with access, they're nice. And yes, something should be done, but you need to get on the ground, work with the transportation issues, with the cost issues, and any other issues that people have, because that's going to allow people to come up to the whites or go up to Maine and experiencing hiking there. Got it. Yeah, because I do feel like whenever that this discussion comes up, it's very sort of an inward focus. Like the hiking community needs to like learn about X, Y, and Z, and you know, the hiking community needs to, you know, change their behavior in X, Y, and Z. And it's really like what you're saying is it sounds like this is an outward discussion where you get to look at the the logistical problems of actually getting yeah. people up to the white. So makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I understand. I I always tell people. We are sometimes a little elitist in this area mm -hmm. in terms of hiking, but there are still plenty of really fabulous, wonderful people. And I think we have maybe shift the focus to working with those wonderful people instead of focusing on the ones who are not so nice, because it's easy enough to avoid those people. Yeah. But if you find, and that's what I found with the groups, and I'm not in a lot of the groups anymore, but what I was able to do was get a core group of friends that I hike with and I camp with. And for me, that has allowed me to get a lot of access and actually enjoy it because I'm with people who um, I enjoy spending time with. 
Yeah, yeah. And one thing, one other thing, I and we've talked about this before, but and and we've had a mix of people. Like we had um, Steve Mason on, who is an absolute beast and can you know he's a really fast hiker. And then we've had like my friends like Beth Lynn and Mindy on that are. Um, you know, not not as fast. And one of the things that we, me and Stomp have always talked about is that, you know, we don't want to just focus on people that are like these super athletes that are moving like, you know, three miles an hour up and down the trail. So you're not a fast hiker. We've talked about this before, no. but no. can you talk no. a little bit about like, um, and I do feel like like sometimes people have this false impression that they're like, well, I'm really slow, so I'm just in the way out there. And that's just not, not the case because you've done you know all of these lists you've done all these uh, you know awesome hikes and you know you do it at your own pace so can, can you talk a little bit about that i think i used to care a little bit more and again there is that that idea that if you're slow or you know you're breathing heavy that something's wrong with you that you don't know what you're doing people ask me if i'm all right i'm like i'm fine or um, if and my friends and I have talked about it, like sometimes we'll start a hike lane. Somebody's like, it's really late to start a hike. I'm like, I have a headlamp. Yeah. And there are probably people with their phone, which that annoys me that people are like, I have a, a phone on myself, a light on myself. Oh, no, 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 no. You need a headlamp. But I think people tend to think that you have to be in shape. And I will say that the AMC has done a good job in working with people who do hike at different paces so that it it doesn't feel as exclusionary as it has been. And right now, more or less, I just stopped caring about it. it. You know, I want to go out there. I want to enjoy myself. Um, and that's really what motivates me is I want to do these new things. I want to try these new things. But I think that there's, and there's still a stigma, especially around people who are larger size hikers, that they don't belong out there, that they need to get in shape. I'm like, you know what? We all hike differently. And we have to be able to say, okay, you hike differently. You're not going to hike as fast as me. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. But I think it's just really, and I mean, I don't want to say that we have to change our culture because I don't think we have to just understanding that there are different people who are out there and that they they're not, probably not struggling they're probably just fine but not saying everybody's different and you know just accepting that you're going to have those different hikers out there yeah. so i got one more question i want to ask you before we transition into the winter hiking topic but stop and anything that you wanted to cover with karen before i i get into my last question I was just curious. Uh, you, you were for REI, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what do they do for like community outreach and stuff like that? Or are there any other larger companies that have an outreach program for people that want to get in, into hiking? We do have a program that we just started and I was just talking about one of my managers about, of course, I've forgotten about it. But we are working with a lot of organizations to get underrepresented people more access to the outdoors, mm-hmm. um, sponsoring a couple, sponsoring different groups. Um, there is some community work with COVID. A lot of things took a back seat. So a lot of the community programs are um, starting up again. Okay. So as we begin to get back to normal, 
um, I'll probably have a better idea of what we have. Gotcha. All right. Well, so one other question, and then we'll get into the winter the winter hiking stuff, but this is, I wanted to, one of the things that I, I had written down when we had talked about you coming on was I wanted to address this topic because it's something that's bothered me for probably like the last year or two. And I will tell you, so you're, you know, your name is Karen and yes. I will tell you, I have an aunt and a cousin that are both named Karen. And over the last probably, I would say probably three or four years, the use of Karen as a sort of a disparaging term to describe, uh, typically it's used to sort of describe like a, a you know a middle-aged woman that won't mind their own business and is always causing tro- trouble. You know, I've seen that like that term blow up over the last few years, and quite frankly, like I, the two, my aunt and my cousin, like they are the farthest thing from a prototypical stereotype of a Karen that you can imagine. And then you also, you are one of the you know the farthest thing from a a stereotypical Karen. And I would like to know from your perspective, and I think people need to really start opening their minds around how painful this could be in the future, but can you talk a little bit about how the that term has gotten into the zeitgeist of sort of society and how that's affected you? I have no idea. I've stopped paying attention to a lot of things for um, my own sanity's sake, but I had a student when we were remote, she's like, I have, I have this question. I just have to ask you. I just have to ask you. I'm like, okay. She's like, miss, what's your middle name? I'm like, that is probably the weirdest question that, I mean, kids will ask me all sorts of questions, but very seldom will kids ask me my middle name. And I'm like, well, why do you need to know my middle name? She's like, because you don't act like a Karen. And I just thought that that was just so funny that I had a kid who actually came out and said that. So particularly for that class and with a couple other classes, I said, if you guys got out of the hand, I'm going to go all Karen on you. And usually that would work for, you know, maybe a half hour or so. And then mm-hmm. they go back to being teenagers again. But I think I've just like taken it in, in stride and I've warned people. It's like, you know, my name is Karen. And if I have to act like my name, I'm going to act like my name. So at least I've just tried to embrace it as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's a family name on on our side. And it's just it's sad to me that the the idea that that and I think it's a beautiful name. And it's sad to me that it's going to very likely disappear from, you know, the the names of 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 children being born. I think I think anybody who you know thinks to name their their child Karen at this point, given how society has stigmatized the name it's just a very weird thing and like i you know the five people that listen to this show like i at least i just wanted to throw this out there to sort of talk about it because it's it just bothers me now i I used to be funny and i used to you know i used to participate as well but now i've sort of thought about it and i'm like this is really like become sort of embedded in society and it's stigmatized this name to the point where it's it's just going to um go extinct well, it's, it's going to happen. I mean, I've been teaching for 20 years. So I've seen I've seen all the Caitlin's and all the spellings of Caitlin's. I had five Johns in one class and each John spelled their name a different way. So you see all of the different um, variations of names as um, years gone, out, 
go on. I think um, there are a couple of names that are coming up, but you know, after a while, people are going to get bored with it, and then next thing, it's probably going to be Mike that they're they're going to be calling um, people Mikes if they do something. But people yeah. people will get bored, and then they'll move on. It's just they haven't gotten bored yet. Yeah, yeah, well, it will happen. Anyway, well, I just wanted to put that out there while I had you on the show because I think it's a it's a shame. So, um, all right. So, Karen, I, again, thank you so much for coming on. So, we're going to move on no to segment number two, which is an intro to winter hiking. So, Stomp, can you talk a little bit about how you, you know how did you evolve into being like a winter hiking person? It started while I was doing the 48 with my wife, and it started gradually. We started doing easier hikes like um, hail, because our our journey traversed four seasons within two years. Um, um, so it started with smaller hikes and just learned how to manage problems as they arose. And, uh, you know, when I got into search and rescue, that became, you know, getting thrown into uh, longer exposed situations in, you know, severe weather and things like that. And then take it to now, um, doing like the highest 500, which is pure bushwhacking essentially in deep snows, you know, snowshoeing, um, packing for survival when you're out on a long bushwhack like that. So it was a gradual process and picked you know, picked up a lot of tips from people along the way. Like uh, my buddy Tom Becker, we spent the night at the captain sleeping in minus 10 base temperature in a three-season tent. I mean, just making things work and knowing how to problem solve on the fly if you have to. Uh, it didn't happen quick, but uh, it's a it's a long process because it's, it's a lot easier than, no, it's a lot harder, excuse me, than uh, say hiking in the midsummer. You know, there's just no room for error. Yeah, and Karen, what about what about you? What was your journey into becoming a winter hiking expert like? I don't know if I'm an expert. I have had um, several hard knocks, such as don't remove your gloves even for a little bit of time, because then your fingers are going to feel a little funky for a while. They'll look a little weird, and then your your hands will always get cold after that. So it's been a lot of trial and error. I also went through the winter hiking program. So I did a lot of things with them. And like I said, they do a good job. At that time, we were going up to Cardigan Lodge. And we were doing some hikes from from the large lodge up to Cardigan they, to get people prepared for winter camping. They also opened up some of the campsites. So people were going out and they were... Um, they were learning how to set up a tent, how to properly guide out a, camp, a tent in the snow. So having that experience and having that knowledge, I think, has helped me a lot. I haven't done a lot of um, ambitious things. Um, most of my camping or backpacking is kind of low and something that's lower risk than, say, going up to some of the tent sites. Um, that you you can go to in the winter, but again, it's seldom that I'll do that. I usually stay more low for things like that. But as for hiking, I mean, I've done I think about seven of them now. I'm hoping for my next big birthday. Maybe I'll actually do um, Washington in the winter. But you know, Washington is one of those things you have to look. 
you have to get the right day. Mm-hmm. And if it's the right, not the right day, then you got to do something else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think my my experience with winter hiking is similar to both of you. I, I, me, me and my friend Tom, like we we've, we worked together and you know, we both had a similar interest in getting into winter hiking. And luckily, my friend Jonathan, um, he has done a lot of winter hiking over the years. And he was nice enough to bring us along on an overnight at the um, Gray Knob um, cabin in on Mount Adams. So he had given us sort of the advice about the gear we needed and all. And it was rough. And I, I packed way too much stuff. And it was it was a learning experience. And then I think Stomp, it was that time I, I hiked with you in Chaga right after that. And we did the uh, the the Glen Boulder to isolation, and for me it was like a fake it till you make it. Like I didn't really know what I was doing when it came to winter hiking, but you just look at other people and you kind of learn as you go along. Well, there was also that blizzard hike we did up over Carter Mariah. That was a hell of a learning yes. experience too. I think all of yeah. us were just figuring out layers on that day, pretty much. Yeah, I think so. And then I think. As I got more comfortable, I would actually take opportunities to kind of push the limits of my gear. And I think, Stomp, the one hike that really stands out to me is the one that we did where it was like, I think it was like minus 40 or minus 50 wind chill on top of Flume and Liberty. And that was the day <laughs> that I think me and you really sort of pushed it a little bit. Yeah, that, that was quite a memory. I think we spent about a millisecond up on top of the flume summit up and over that exposure and that was about it too cold yeah. let's go <laughs> moving on exactly yeah there's something about franconia notch in the winter because i my first attempt of lafayette was in the winter was actually saint patrick's day for some unknown reason but there were a bunch of snow squalls the wind was blowing we got up to the hut and everything was fine as we got up closer to the summit cone the winds were blowing. I was being blown into the Karens. My glasses were fogging up. And I got about halfway up and I'm like, nope, that can't do this. And then I just went back down. But I even saw people who had Coke bottles with frozen water in them because they didn't know how to deal with those situations. And here I am with all my gear and my snowshoes and you see people in micro spikes. And I'm like, mm. um, I think you guys need to go down now. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was my first experience with solo winter hiking as I climbed Lafayette from Old Bridal. And I I did like the, I got lost. I got off trail because there was no visibility. And I did that sort of classic mistake of heading down towards um, Skookum Chuck and Garfield in that area. There, Luckily, I turned around. I realized what I did. But, you know, you, it's just what we're trying to do with tonight's show is to have people avoid some of the mistakes that we've all made by by learning on the fly. So hopefully. hopefully we'll see. But um, so here's the order stomp that we're going to go in here. So we're going to cover some basic info. Then we're going to talk about logistics and in particular sort of things that you need in your car and to know about like the trailheads and ro- road uh, closures and things like that. Then we're going to talk about traction Um you know, snowshoes and micro spikes and all that. We'll talk a little bit about winter hiking culture in New Hampshire, some of the best places to start hiking, and then info on critical basic gear, such as like your backpack, your water systems, ground insulation, and boots. And then next episode, 
will cover everything related to clothing and accessories. And I'll also, Karen, I'll try to get like your gear list from you and Stomp. We'll have to get your, well, Stomp's gear list is always very interesting. So, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> 70, 70 pounds of search and rescue stuff. But we'll include in the show notes all of our gear list so that you can you can look at it. But I guess the to start with here, so the basics, for me, the things that I think about when I, when I want to sort of set people's expectations is when it comes to winter hiking, I think the, you know, you, there's definitely people out there that are doing sort of the ultralight thing, but when you're starting winter hiking, you got to get out of that mindset and you just have to accept the fact that you're going to be carrying a bunch of stuff and going light and fast has its has its time, but as you're starting out, I feel like anything to do with ultralight or, or you know cutting grams off of your your gear list is just not the right mindset. So I think just take I would think just be heavier than you you want to be, take more than you have to, and then over time you'll learn what you do and don't need. But start off heavy because you, you'll you'll be happy you have extra stuff versus like going light and, and getting in trouble. So, do you guys agree or disagree? I yeah, I agree. I and there's agree. there are even yeah. books. I think there was one book, Ultralight Winter Backpacking. I'm like, no, that might not be. Th-. And I'm, and I understand that I'm not one of those ultralight people. I like to be comfortable, particularly if I'm backpacking. But when it comes to winter, the stuff is just going to be heavier. The snowshoes are heavier. The traction's going to add weight. If you have those nice koozies or you want to go for the hydro flask, keep your water flowing and not frozen, that's going to add on extra weight. It's just you're going to have heavier gear to deal with the conditions when you are doing winter hiking in the whites. And this doesn't mean that you do your last foliage hike up Artist Bluff with your 15 liter pack and then you go out in february with a 60 pound pack on because there's a training curve to this you can't you can't go out with a heavier pack on the first shot because you're going to burn out you're going to sweat out you're going to get to the top of the summit and freeze so there's a training curve to carry a heavier pack that's a good point and then the the other thing to keep in mind in the winter is that your margin of error is a lot smaller so exactly what you're talking about stomp is like you can't just get out of the parking lot and say like i'm gonna hike mount washington like you've got to do these smaller hikes start on flat terrain and then work your way up to 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 steeper mountains and you have to learn how to use the gear with gloves and mittens on because i Usually when you're, you're putting on gear, you're used to having your bare hands, but in the winter, you don't want to expose them. And sometimes you may be putting things on with heavier gloves and mittens and just having that knowledge of how to do that can be vitally important as well. well. Adding, adding to that, it's not the time to try gear for the first time. <laughs> you want to make sure you know how to use the gear when it's you know, 10 degrees out or zero and not be fiddling with it because there are times when you may have to take your glove off to, to get something nimble started. And uh, that's when you get in trouble. So know how to use the gear you're taking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I had a couple of other notes here. 
Um, you know, solo hiking is riskier in the winter. You know, I'm always, I think stuff, we've talked a lot about this. I'm always of the mind that like, if you wait for other people to be available, like you'll never go hiking. But when it comes to solo hiking in the winter, you've got to change your mindset a little bit. Like if you're experienced and you are comfortable, you can certainly do solo hiking. But I think if you're starting off, the best thing that you can possibly do, and you know, I'm eternally grateful for Jonathan uh, for taking me and Tom under his wing to teach us everything we needed to know about winter hiking, is find somebody that's an experienced winter hiker and um, you know, utilize their knowledge. And you know, like Karen, you're talking about the AMC group. We've had the hiking buddies on before. You know, there's a bunch of different resources around meetup groups that would likely allow for you know beginners to to get some experience. And there are also a lot of guide companies um, in the whites that can help people be able to get the skills that they need to go out there as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I know Redline Guides, uh, Mike Cherum, and then there's another one, nor- Northeast, I think, yeah. Mountaineering. And I think there might be some in Plymouth too that I'm not as familiar with. Yeah. Um, so again, yeah, everything is harder and slower in winter. And then Stomp, we, I mean, we, I talked about this a little bit, like me and you really have pushed the limits a couple of times with like insane weather days, but there's always like two or three sort of like stretches of weather where like the, the conditions are just insanity around like the, the cold weather. C- can you talk a little bit about your perspective on like, there's just some time where you just got to stay home, right? No question. Absolutely. No question. I mean, if, if they're forecasting a blizzard, uh, heavier snow or sub-zero temps, I mean, just that's, that's the best time to stay home. And I get the impression, like just looking at social media that for the most part, people do uh, hone in on that and stay home. But unfortunately, there are a small few that just love that adrenaline rush and want to push and say, look at me, I'm, I can handle this, uh, whatever. It's not, not the smartest thing to do. You, you definitely have no one to say that's enough. And you're going to hear it on the news. I mean, people are saying, don't go out. <laughs> when you hear that, it's probably a good, good idea to listen. Yeah, if you can't drive to the trailhead, just oh, stay home. Yeah, no kidding. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing, too, that, you know, like the extreme cold is one thing, but also you got to keep an eye on the melt as well, because what you don't want to do is get wet when you're hiking. That's in the winter because that's where the hypothermia really can hit you quickly. Mm-hmm. And there's some days where it's like if it's 35 or 40 degrees and you've got snow melting off the trees, you can find yourself soaking wet at the lower portion of the mountain. Then you get up above because when it's warm like that, it also generates fog and you can you can get soaking wet. So there's some days where if it's heavy, wet snow that's on the trees or if it's snow that's coming down that's like sort of a sleet mix, like those are just as dangerous in some respects as days where it's like minus 20 degrees out. Yeah, and, and think about blowdowns. I mean, when it's, when it's cold enough, when you're hearing the sap crack inside the trees and it's windy, not a good time to be in the woods, <laughs> plain and simple. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and then the last thing I had here around the basics is above tree line, visibility is everything. If you are approaching going above tree line and you know you're not comfortable with the visibility situation, uh, err on the side of turning around. You know if you've got experience or you're with a group, 
Um, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in past episodes, but like, don't, don't risk if you, if you're not comfortable with the situation and there's no visibility, don't risk it. And always like, keep in mind, especially in the winter, one hand, one headlamp is no headlamp. And with the cold weather, electronics are not reliable. The batteries will die quickly on your phones. And in your headlamps as well. Yep. Yeah, and sometimes your path will disappear. If you're relying on a track without having a GPS or something, don't because your path can disappear on you with the winds. All right, so that's the basics around safety. Um, logistics, so the the in the winter, like it's not as simple as just driving up to the trailhead, getting out of your car and, and going hiking. There's, there's, there's road closures. There's all kinds of things that you got to deal with. Stomp, can you talk a little bit about some of the basics around what you should have in your car and, you know, your your knowledge of road closures and and, and, and strategies to make sure that when you get back to your car, you can actually drive away? Depending on how severe a storm may be, if you're heading out after a storm, that's the best time to go. You're going to have to give the state or the towns time to clear out the trailheads and things like that. If you do get stuck in your car or if you're unable to get out of a particular situation, I found myself stuck in a ditch in my truck. And what do you do if you're stuck in a truck and you can't get out and you have no cell service and you can't contact a tow company? Uh, You're going to be warm enough for an extended period of time. So uh, it's probably a good idea to bring some extra clothing, even a sleeping bag, have that stuff in your car. I have been in like a couple of scenarios where I've been nervous about like getting out. And what I tell people is that when it comes to trailhead parking, especially if it's like snowing, bring a shovel, have a have a full size shovel in your car because you'll get plowed in sometimes. Remember, Stomp, when we, we did that hike out to Mount Parker and we actually got plowed in. Luckily, we were yeah. like on the side of the road. We were able to kind of bust through. But there's a lot of times where you pull into a trailhead and if there's if it's plowed like sometimes they plow on the main road you might have two feet of snow pushed in and you've got to you've got to you know shovel your way out i think having a four-wheel drive vehicle in new hampshire is key having a quality snow rake is big um make sure you have rubber mats two by fours or whatever well i was was just gonna say that's how i got out of my ditch was my floor mat (laughs) it's amazing i tried and tried and tried yeah, exactly. You got to put your, you got to jam your your floor mat under there. And then the other thing that I always tell people is a portable like car battery charger or jumper cables because I see it all the time. Like people will say like, oh, I left my interior light on because they're getting to the trailhead in the dark. They put the interior light on so that they can get they can get all their stuff out. They forget to shut it off, and then they get back to the car and the battery's dead. Oh yeah. So what do you do? So, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then road closures. So Karen, want to talk a little bit about road closures in the winter? Some of the roads in the whites close for the winter. Um, I'm just thinking um, some of the ones that people may be familiar with. Hay- Haystack Road closes, Gale River Loop closes, and there are a lot of other roads that will close because they're just not drivable. Or in the case of Bear Notch no- Road, they use that for um, cross-country skiing as well. And the problem is you may, like you said, at the beginning of a hike, you may be able to drive on the road, but if there's a snowstorm, you're stuck there. And I've heard of stories um, in Maine because I've had some real fun driving on some of the forest roads in Maine after bad after bad storms and in the snow. 
And I've heard stories of people whose cars weren't able to make it. And AAA is like, nope, we're not going to help you. And they haven't been able to get their cars until the thaw. So, nope, you don't want your car stuck there. And the roads are going to get soft. They're going to get icy. So it's really more of a safety reason to making sure that the road is in good condition come the um, come the spring season. And yeah. honestly, you know what? There are so many other ways that you can go up mountains, and there are other mountains that you can do. So if a road is closed for the winter, um, take out that map, take out that white mountain guide, and you can find so many other, maybe even more fun activities to do than what you thought you were going to do. Yeah, exactly. And some one of the things I tell people too that are just starting off with hiking is that the road situation is a it's it's a plus and a minus. It's a minus from the perspective that yeah, you've got to, um, you know, you've got to walk a longer um, distance to get to where you want to go to. But some of the more pleasant um, moments I've had snowshoeing have just been on you know the, these wide roads that are closed to traffic like i think of like that that walk from like the crawford path trailhead to edmonds path on mountain clinton road is like a beautiful place to like practice snowshoeing so it's there's there's pluses and minuses to it but you're definitely going to be walking more in the winter on these closed roads to get to trailheads and with the if you're looking at um sawyer pond you the quickest way in there is on um is on the road there but it's closed in the winter you can't access it from the other side but then again you have to be knowledgeable of how to deal with that with the conditions there to get to sawyer pond so there are sometimes other access but you need to research and you need to find out about that other access how to get there or even if the lot is open because again the lot may be shoveled in and you just have to wait for the snow to melt. Yeah. Yeah. And I think new England, uh, what is it? New England trail conditions, um, is the, uh, where everybody puts their, uh, their hiking, uh, updates on. So I'll link to, uh, to that site so that people can use. And I use that way more in the winter than I do in the summer because just, yeah. I want to know if a trail is packed out or not. So but we'll talk about that in a minute, but, we want to get geared up now here, Karen. So for, for research, when you're looking for information about like certain gear and things like that, can you talk about like where you go on like, um, you know, do you have certain websites or, I mean, I know you work for REI, so you got to pretty much encyclopedia knowledge in your mind, but like where would you recommend newbies um, to, to start researching? Um, I don't know about that encyclopedia up there, but there's there's information that's there. Um, talk to the different people. There are several outdoor stores that are in the whites that are in Massachusetts, and people will talk to you. They will tell you things that you need. They will a lot of people will go around and they will help outfit you, particularly with clothing, because that does seem to be a big piece of it because you have to learn how to layer and how to manage your temperature because there are people who are going out there and they're all bundled up but then you have people who are in shorts and a t-shirt and they're going up Lafayette you just have to learn about what works for you 
I'm not going up anything in shorts and a t-shirt because that's just not going to work for me. But also with that heat management, you have to figure out when do I remove layers? When do I add on layers? And that's one of the things that we do with the winter hiking program is getting people to know when they need to change things, when they need to do something different because you know, it's, it's not going to work for them. But if you're showing up at trailhead and a whole bunch of puffies, I would say probably in about five to 10 minutes, you're going to get too warm. Um, at least with REI, we have a section called expert advice, which goes over so much information about layering, packing your pack, the gear that you need so that you at least have something that will help you in that very beginning process. And there are a lot of good websites that are out there. Um, some of the different groups do a very good job of helping prepare people to go out there. Again, that information is out there. Sometimes it's you know going to REI or going to another outdoor store and talking with somebody or going out and finding your own research on the topic. Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I, I go on to a couple of different places. Like I seems, seems to me, I seem to always go on to Section Hiker. So Phil, Phil Warner's yeah. page, that seems to be, in my opinion, is if I'm looking for a specific piece of gear, I can go on to Phil's page, which is sectionhiker.com. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll link that in the show notes. And I can typically get a list from him about like the top 10 whatevers and i do try to like if, if i'm doing the research on his page i will try to buy some stuff through his um his links to give him a little bit of love back because he really does a good job in in, in gear information but but stop what about you what are you talking about I was, i've been thinking about micro spikes for the last 10 minutes <laughs> oh yeah 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 well i'm talking about like if you if you're gonna do research on uh, sorry guys gear. wake up Snap. <laughs> So just so everyone's aware, Stomp has been like on rescue. Like he was on a crazy <laughs> rescue. Lab. We'll talk about it in another episode, but like he's definitely tired. So I'm wiped. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, I was just so drifting off thinking about micro spikes. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's. Uh, so anyway, so section hikers where you want to go to research your shit. So we're going to go to traction. now. Oh, so boy. this is. So we're going to get geared up now. So the first thing we want to learn about, and this is probably where people have the most questions to start with, is traction. So what we mean by traction is stuff you put on your feet so that you don't slip. All right? So Mm. stomp. I can handle this one, I think. I'll hand it over to you to give the basics. All right? Wake up. All right. Let's go. All right. I guess slap myself. All right. Here we go. (laughs) Well, there's different levels of intensity with uh, traction, and you can start with your basic yak track style, which is basically just a plastic uh, netting that slides over your shoe with little metal spirals that wrap the plastic, and it lets you take your trash out. Um, Then you can move up to microspikes, which have different grades of teeth, little pyramidal teeth underneath them, some ranging from, say, quarter inch up to about an inch or so, depending on what you're looking for. And, you know, microspikes come in handy when you're doing, say, a pack-down trail that's, um, you know, soft snow, not uh, deep snow, which would require, say, a snowshoe to keep you floating above the deeper snow. Um, but then it, with the deeper teeth, with the longer teeth, then you can start to traverse over, say, uh, some some 
icy patches and things like that. When you get into uh, full-blown mountaineer and crampons, now you're talking about steeper, icier conditions that require a deeper level of grip and traction so that you're not slipping and sliding and falling to your death, essentially. Um, Now, when it comes to what you should take, I personally take all three when I'm going out in the winter. You know, midwinter, yes, all three. Um, Early in the season, when there's probably not as much ice, you may be fine without crampons. Or say, for instance, if you're just going up a a fairly gradual, moderate trail, a moderate difficulty trail, you're probably not going to need mountaineering crampons. But if you're going up Huntington Ravine or something like that in the winter, yeah, you're going to need some serious crampons. So... Uh, but in general, yeah, pack your crampons, um, snowshoes, and micro spikes. And uh, that's where you, the research comes into. If you know that you're not going, going to experience deep snow, then the snowshoes may even be a, a pass. So it takes a little calculation. Yeah, I sort of feel like, and again, this isn't, this isn't like written in stone, but I feel yeah. like with winter hiking for, and if you're a local, it's a little bit different. I think you probably use your snowshoes more frequently, but I feel like you're like 75% of the time you're in micro spikes, 25% of the time you're in snowshoes, and then like rarely are you in crampons unless you're doing some crazy stuff. Although, but the thing is, is that there's some years where you get a lot of like, freeze and thaw where right. that environment will require you to have um crampons so it depends or um, or but, within yeah. that micro spike category i think like take for instance uh Amanusik trail uh a, a shallow tooth would be fine all the way up until the cascades and that last quarter mile up until the hut you're going to need a deeper tooth because it's just not going to cut it on that glare ice. Yeah, so that's a good segue, Karen. So specifically microspike brands, um, can you talk a little bit about um, you know the brands that you're familiar with and, and your thoughts on them? Well, of course, there are the Yacht Tracks, and they've gotten a little beefy, but I think what Stom said was correct. That's for taking out the garbage for going to the mailbox for shoveling the snow when i've done what choose it i've always seen so many broken yak tracks just along the side of the trail (laughs) because they are not meant for that type of winter they're meant for very light use or maybe local conservation land but for me I mean, they're great for some things, but if you're going up any type of mountain, I would go more with something like the Catulas or the Hill Sounds. Mm. I have the Hill Sounds, and I've really enjoyed them. They have the strap that goes around that help keep the micro spikes in place. And um, if I'm just thinking about a trip that I did um, in, in April to Ethan Pond, where I was constantly post-holing, having your micro spikes attached to your shoes or, or your boots is a good thing when you sink down and you have to pull it up to um, to go and continue walking. Otherwise, you're going into some post-hole trying to pull your traction out. Yeah. But um, the Catulas do seem to be also another popular one because they say micro spikes, so that's usually what people will um, go ahead and get. And I mean, it's simple enough. If you want to put a strap on them, you know, it's very easy to just get a strap and do that if you really like them. But 
at least from my understanding of talking to different people, it seems to be that the hill sounds have a little bit of a sharper tooth than the Catullas do. So that's why some people tend to go with them. And I know that Catula also does have some crampons, but I wouldn't use them up Washington. Yeah. I would use those for more um, local types of things where it might be icy. But I remember a couple of years ago, everything was ice. And even with crampons, it was still difficult to be able to hike up some of the mountains because you still have to dig into that ice. And if you step the wrong way, it gets kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm a, I'm a Catula person, so I have I've always just used those. But Stomp, you're more you have Hill Sounds, right? Yes, I love them. I swear by them. I used to use Catula, but then Hill Sound came out with that really beefy tooth. Yeah, and I love more them. I agree. Right? Yeah, and I think yeah. Catula is starting to you know they're both copycatting each other. Every season, they're trying yeah. to up each other. And they have several different types of micro spikes now. Like going from like nano spikes to all these different types, ones with some with more teeth, but they're a little bit shorter. Um, hmm. Like I said, they have a crampon, which is again not really a crampon, but if you need it, it's there. Yeah. But it is very interesting how they've even evolved. Both companies have evolved over the years. Yeah, yeah. and there's a couple of things that I always tell people about micro spikes, like just sort of some accessories, is always have zip ties in your yeah. winter. I mean, I always keep zip ties year-round in my uh, my emergency pack, but zip ties can save you if you're, you know, a lot of these have rubber gaskets that fit around your boots, and that's how they they, they attach. And occasionally the, that rubber can get brittle, or if you've got if you don't have a good fit. Um, they can break, or if you put them on too aggressively, they can break. So you always want to have zip ties. The other thing that I tell people about um, micro spikes is I always put a carabiner on my shoulder or somewhere easily accessible in my pack so that I can just clip the micro spikes when I'm not wearing them. They jingle a little bit. A lot of times I'll bare boot, like if I'm doing a road walk for two, three miles, I might bare boot if it's if it's the trail is um, packed down. So you just want to be able to have them be easily clippable to the outside of your pack because you don't necessarily want to put those inside your pack after you've worn them because it just gets everything inside wet. So a couple of tricks that I always tell people. Yeah, you taught me that one, Mike. And I've actually used that on my hill sounds because I have found uh, one negative thing about them is that those metal chain links sometimes will pop over time or you just bang them against a rock just right and all of a sudden your uh your hill sound is flopping off your foot so those tie wraps are key yeah exactly so from my perspective like if you're looking at micro spikes you either get catullers or hill sounds uh for the most part you can't go wrong with either one um so now snowshoes I've got this as me starting this piece out here, but I think Karen and Snob, you can definitely put in your two cents. But there's a, you you want to have, I guess, mountaineering snowshoes, so you don't want these big giant like aluminum ones with the sort of the aluminum um, tubes around them. You typically the snowshoes that you want are going to have like a like a hard plastic deck with an aggressive crampon. And the typical brands that I think are most popular, like the big three that I think of is MSR, Tubbs, and TSL. And there's a couple of newer brands that sort of have been popping up. But for the most part, if you're shopping around, MSR, Tubbs, or TSL are the ones that you would typically use for hiking. They typically have a, a, 
a binding that straps on or to your boot and there's some that do not have a heel lift but most of them have a heel lift so that if you're going uphill you can flip this little um, lift up that will sort of keep you parallel with the height of the um, the elevation I, I don't have a heel lift on mine I have MSR Evos which are just the base model um, and I think for the most part if you're not a local New Hampshire person you know, you do want to wear snowshoes, but the chance of you breaking out a trail is not that great if you're not local, because it seems like the locals tend to get uh, get to the trail breaking pretty frequently. But you do typically, people will say you should wear snowshoes to keep the the trail clean. So that's an etiquette thing where you should always err on the side of wearing snowshoes. But if it's packed down, you can just switch over to the micro spikes and you got to make a judgment call on that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mostly know about the MSRs. I don't know, Karen, Stomp, what, what brands you have or what your thoughts are with snowshoes. I also have the MSRs, and I can tell you that heel lift is absolutely amazing. It yeah. saves you some, from so much calf strain. And even when I did Musalock, because I have the older pair that have the three, three straps that go over, and they're beginning to get harder to work with now. And I just didn't use use my heel left lifts because it was just so much trouble getting every everything together. I'm like, I'm just gonna, you know, go through it. And I got to the top, but it was not a fun experience. And knowing when to use snowshoes. If anybody tells you that you don't need snowshoes, you need snowshoes. That's exactly what I did on Musalock. The guys are like, Oh, it's fine. You don't need snowshoes. I I was just standing there and I pulse hold. And I'm like, yeah. I wish I had my snowshoes. It's really a, it is sort of a judgment call, but and again, I can say this from experience where I'm like, no, I'm not going to carry my snowshoes, and I instantly regretted it. Sometimes you just need to carry the snowshoes. Sometimes they're going for a ride. I mean, look at that as maybe a little bit of extra cardio, but you never know when you're going to need them, and when you need them, you need them. And I think for a lot of people who are going out there it's knowing that sometimes you just you just need to carry them because micro spikes are good and they'll take you to a a lot of summits but if you want to make sure that you're safe and you're going to get there and back to your car you're just going to need the snowshoes yeah yeah, i I have a couple points um just briefly a lot of people are buying snowshoes blind over the internet. They're harder to find these days, last year in particular, this year. Do your homework about how they fit, how, how much you weigh, uh, because if you put a snowshoe on that's too short, you ain't going to be floating on the snow. So you have to do your homework on that. Uh, secondarily, the uh, the bindings are important. Karen, I have the ones you're talking about, the belt buckle loops on my MSRs yeah. that come over. They're adequate, but the new BOA system that, some of the tubs have are fantastic and I, I hear from a lot of people that they they fit better there's less of the uh, tone numbness or you know, over compression that some of the belt buckle style loops um, provide so just consider that the boa it may be different names for different companies but it's essentially a, um, a swivel uh, dial you dial in your tension essentially and you can press it in and it releases instantly so it's very handy Less fussing with those belt buckles, especially when it's cold, because the belt yeah. buckle, buckles get harder to pull over, <laughs> yep. and you're, you're like, "This is not fun anymore." <laughs> right. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. The other things to keep in mind about snowshoes is, and we'll talk about packs in a minute, but you do want to make sure that you have a backpack that's big enough so that you can mount your snowshoes. You want to make sure that you've practiced how you're going to mount your snowshoes onto your backpack so that you're not figuring that out while you're on the trail. And it's a really hard thing. And honestly, I would say mounting my snowshoes and getting a system down where I felt comfortable on how I'm mounting my sh- my snowshoes onto my backpack when I wasn't using them, it took me probably about three winter seasons to really get to the point where I felt comfortable with it and found a pack that worked and a system that worked. And for me, and there's many different ways you can do this, but for me, I mount the snowshoes one on each side so that I've got an even distribution of weight and they basically go where my water bottles on either side would would go and I just I have a strap system that works for me there's many different systems I've seen people that do it sort of they 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 strap them inside the brain of the backpack I've seen people that have pockets where they they stuff them in I've seen people that do what I do which is just put one snowshoe on either side Uh, There's a million different techniques that you can use, but you've got to figure out what works for you, and it's not an easy thing. (laughs) Yeah, I use the side technique. Yeah, you definitely have to get used to it. Yeah. I've I've actually added a few accessory um, straps and buckles to my packs just to hold them in a little better. You can get those at any major store that sells outdoor equipment, Lahoots or wherever. And then I think um, the last piece of – so we talked about microspikes. We've talked about snowshoes crampons for me like i only know what i have like i don't know a lot about brands of crampons i think like there's there's definitely like climbing crampons which i don't know anything about i have gravel g10s which are like i think the most basic like decent crampon you can get and for the most part they've been fine for any icy situations that i've been in and karen like you talked about that there was that one season like probably three or four years ago where we had all that it was a melt and then it would freeze up again and it was just crazy like some of the we were on lowe's path and i think there was like a mile worth of hiking that was just on like solid ice and you needed crampons but a lot of times you're not going to need them but for me i have a pair of gravel g10s they weren't super expensive they have like these crazy straps that you got to learn learn to work out. But for the most part, I just I just keep those. And it's one of those things where you buy one pair, you're going to have them for 20, 30 years. You're not going to be, they're not going to break. They last forever. Yeah. yeah. They don't get as much use. And I have a cheaper pair of camp crampons that have served um, the purpose because I'm not going out doing that large mountaineering. And they, they got a little bit expensive in the past couple of years, but they're still just a very good basic crampon that does the job but one thing i will say about crampons is that most of them are made for mountaineering boots so if you go and i know we're going to talk about boots in a bit but if you're trying to use some of the commercial winter hiking boots what i found is that you can't get the heel incorrect because the heel is made for the mountaineering boot so it's much harder to get it fully inside the crampon. There are, I think Black Diamond does have one that has a wider heel base, but that seems to be the biggest issue that I've seen with people trying to put crampons on not mountaineering boots. It can work and you can yeah. find ways to make it work, but you do need to be aware of that. 
That is okay. correct. And stump, what do you what do you have? What do you have for crampons? I don't even remember. Uh, black diamonds, and I have a, a my mountaineering boots are Koflax, like an older Koflax. And the boot discussion is is intense when it comes to crampons. That's the other factor too. Like if you're in the in the need to wear crampons, you're probably going to be wearing these mountaineering boots. So really depends on what you're doing when we do search and rescue missions in the midwinter we've got the coflax on generally for yep. uh, an emergency call because um, you may be out there for 12 hours and they're just warmer they're warmer and uh, safer yeah and so that's i mean and we'll include all of the details on these brands in the show notes um, and I'm going to put a page on the, the the Slasher podcast website just with winter gear and the list that we put together. Um, and just to kind of go back to the whole, like, what to bring and when. Again, like, my opinion is I have all – I've got micro spikes, I've got snowshoes, and I've got crampons in the car with me. Almost every single hike I will bring micro spikes and snowshoes. Um depending on the season and the intel that I get, I'm able to gather, like I may bring crampons. It depends on the hike. Like if I'm anywhere near the Prezi's, I'm going to bring the crampons. But um, you should at minimum always have the the micro spikes and the snowshoes with you. And if you've at, if there's any sense of you like sinking into the trail at all, put the snowshoes on because you don't want to post hole because people get upset. And it's also a safety issue. People will break their ankle stepping into a frozen post hole and you'll be responsible. So um, definitely bring them at minimum micro spikes and snowshoes and have the crampons in your car to use if you need them. And also with the post holing, I um, sprained my knee earlier in April because I was of that mindset. I want to get to camp. I'm not bringing my snowshoes and everything was fine. And then it wasn't. And I kept post-holing and post-holing, post-holing. And then I um, twisted my knee and I'm like, I'm supposed to be having fun, but you can get hurt if you think that you're just going to be able to, um, like I, I can just use micro spikes, but you don't know. This was April when the snow is soft and the snow is melting and there's post holes, post holes everywhere. So you do need to think about that also from a safety standpoint, because post holing is not fun, and um, having to go to physical therapy for six weeks is also not fun because you can't go out and enjoy yourself. So just bring the snowshoes sometimes. Not that physical therapy is not fun, but when you're not able to go out there and and hike, it's not fun. It's fun when Stomp does your physical therapy. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I talk about that for a second? Sure. I've just opened up a little clinic up in Franconia. If anybody's looking for PT, very exciting time. I, that's what I've been sort of working on the last few months. Um, just change of pace, change of uh, scenery. Very excited. Awesome. Yeah. We can link that in the show notes. Yeah. I know how to stretch out those tight calves. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's, I think that's the overview on traction. And then we're going to get into a little bit more gear here, but just around the whole traction thing, I did want to talk a little bit about sort of winter hiking culture in the whites and Stomp, you, you can probably inform me a little bit more on this, but you know, my impression basically is that if you're on the 4,000 footers or the common like 52 with the view peaks, when there's snow snowstorms coming in like i feel like the locals get all the trails broken out pretty quickly mm. um 
but you can't assume. You always got to bring your snowshoes. But a lot of times you won't be breaking trail. But if you are breaking trail, like you have to sort of, sometimes you just have to change your expectations. If, if, if you have like a six-mile hike plan, but you've got to break trail, that's a completely different hike and a completely different experience than if you're going to hike six miles on a trail that's already broken out. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. From experience, <laughs> it's exhausting. Yeah. I mean, if you're in deep snow, your effort, your workload is magnified exponentially, so you can burn out a lot quicker. It's very difficult. Yeah, exactly. Good to go with groups. Yeah. Good to go with other people. Uh, maybe trade off, break the trail. When you're getting tired, get get to the back of the line and let somebody else break it for a while. Yeah. I think, uh, like I said, Mount Clinton Road is a good place to practice on, Lincoln Woods, anything that's flat, any of these closed roads, Zealand, whatever, especially when you're hiking in snowshoes. Like, you're just a little, Stomp, you may be able to explain this, but you're like a little wider walk, and I feel like it takes like a, a little bit of time to sort of get get used to walking with your legs splayed out a little bit with the snowshoes i know i notice it and no yeah it forces you to know. walk differently and, and and that just naturally uses other muscle groups that you may not be familiar with so there it is again it's training and there's a curve to get used to it and to uh be able to do it uh, well and not burn out and that also goes to the research because there are, when you buy snowshoes, they will list the different widths. And I know that some women's snowshoes tend to be a little bit more narrow than the men's snowshoes. So when you're going and you're looking, look at the widths, um, look at the length of the snowshoe because all, all that is going to help you have a good time and are out there if you have the right gear. And let's cater to the uh, the trail runners out there. There are snowshoes for trail runners. Uh, Dion snowshoes out in Vermont make fantastic snowshoes. They're made for running, so they're narrow set. They're very light, and they're uh, they're meant for just running at top speed. So, because those trail runners don't go away when it snows, they're out there still. Yeah, yeah. The, those trail runners in the winter are not much much credit to them, but I, I couldn't do it. But the next thing that I have is um, pack size. So we see this question a lot. People are like, what should I get for a winter hiking pack? And, um, you know, I don't know what your opinions are. I can talk about what I have. But, like, uh, Karen, what, what do you recommend when people come to the store? They must ask that question. Like, I want to get into winter hiking. I don't have a backpack. What size do you recommend? Usually we re- recommend about a 40. You can use a 35, and I've um, used a 35. But particularly if you're just starting out, I would go with a 40 just to make sure th- that you are able to get everything that you need into that pack. And definitely practice with putting um, your snowshoes on the pack, with putting where you're going to put your crampons on the pack, where you're going to put water on the pack, these are all the things that you do need to think about. But I would say um, that a 40-liter pack would be a good size to carry all the things that you might need for a hike. Mm, that's a really good point. But the, the functionality with packs, the bigger the pack, generally the more functionality in terms of latch points and things like that. So it is easier to attach things and you know secure things. That's what I found. So I prefer a bigger pack. 40 is a good call. 50 is good. I go with the bigger just because, again, functionality. It's just easier. And a lot of packs now are made either for skiing or for um, other outdoor sports. And they do have 
all of those at attachment points on them. But right. I will say that a lot of pack companies now are realizing that they need to make these multifunctional um, packs. So they do hmm. add in these different pieces so that you're able to get everything into the pack and onto the pack that you need to. That's great. Yeah, and I, the other factor too that you want to think about is if you're going to be doing any level of overnight hiking, it, you know, you don't want to necessarily buy two backpacks. So for me, when I made the decision to buy a pack, I ended up getting a 55 liter pack, but I got the Deuter Ear Contact, which is nice because they have a feature where it's a plus 10, so the the top will expand out to give you an extra 10 liters if you need it, and you can sort of adjust the brain to go over the top of it and really pack that thing down, but it's good enough where you can use it in a winter day hike. So for me, I I prefer like a little bit bigger, and again, my perspective is is that like you don't you shouldn't be worrying about ultra light. So I would go a little bit bigger, you know, the 45 to to 55 range. In that way, especially if you're gonna, if you think that you're gonna be doing something a little longer, because there's gonna be times where you do need to, even in a day hike, you want to bring a sleeping bag with you. So it varies. So I would say it sounds like Karen, from your perspective, like 35 is pushing it, 40 is pretty standard, and then me and Stomp are sort of of the mind that like if you you know if you want more latch points and more options, the bigger is better as long as you're not worrying about weight. Yeah, the I I was able to score one of the old. Osprey Aerials, which has all those really good um, points where you can lash things to, you can attach to things to. And I bought that specifically for winter because I knew that if I was going to do a longer backpack, if I needed to bring more things, I needed to safely be able to attach them to the pack. But if I'm doing you no know, a simple hike or something where there's not a lot of mileage, then I'll do the Ford. If I'm doing something with higher mileage, then I will probably go to a larger size pack mm. and definitely overnight over um, a larger size pack. So, yeah, so that's it with pack size. And I think that's, you know, um, everybody says that you should go in and try packs on for fit and all that. So I think, you know, any store that's available that is a good gear store, you, you can definitely um, take advantage of that. Although I usually just order mine online and if I don't like it, I send it back. Sorry, Karen. <laughs> That's okay. We we get so many people who buy packs online, and we we go ahead and we fix them for them. So yeah, that's true. That's help. true. Yes. Um, so the next topic I have here is water. So you need to stay hydrated. You know, we've talked about hypothermia before here, and strategies around that with Chris from Solo. Um, but can you both, t Karen? Can you talk a little bit about what your water strategy is? How do you keep it from freezing? Um, and then, you know, what, do you, what is your advice to people when they want to think about like a water strategy? Water is very important. And I think particularly in winter hiking, people don't think about how important it is to stay hydrated. But if you've ever been in a situation where you're dehydrated, whether it's winter or it's summer, it, things go bad real quick. So you have to think about strategies to make sure that you are drinking enough so that you are able to keep going because if you start getting dehydrated, that's going to, um, that's going to cause a lot of different issues. In terms of keeping water from freezing, I have a couple of different koozies that I use with my water bottles. I have a 40 Below, which is a very nice koozie. It's just that neoprene. 
It has a Velcro opening on it, so it's very easy. You don't have to zipper anything. You don't have to worry about the zipper getting stuck or the zipper freezing. You just put the water bottle in there. You cover it up. Also want to make sure that your water bottle is turned upside down because it will start to freeze on the top. That way, the opening of the water bottle, and I would stick with the wide mouth water bottles. Mm. That way, it's not going to freeze on the top. They have bladders. Um, they have insulated bladders. I just try and tell tell people, your water's still going to freeze. It's just better to go with the Nalgene bottles. If you don't have some of the koozies, and some of those koozies are difficult to find, um, you can get some Reflectix, um, even some of those $10 um, sunshades that you have. You can cut that and you can make something, or you can just use a wool sock and keep the water in a wool sock. But you want to, if you're just using a regular Nalgene bottle, you want to make sure that's insulated. They have the Hydroflask bottles. They've even made a lighter one. I haven't been too impressed with it. But also, Hydroflask bottles are going to be heavier. Your Heavy. water's going to stay hot. But it's going to be more weight that than carrying just an Nalgene bottle and a koozie. Stomp, do you still have your sock with the duct tape wrapped around it? You had that like awesome system that worked. Yeah, man. Karen stole my thunder. Yeah, that's my yeah. that's my strategy. I, I use old wool socks. I wash them, of course, and uh, <laughs> but you wouldn't know it. Like it, I, I got to tell you a story. Can I do a little spur story here? Yeah, I, I'm Go starting ahead. a new podcast, and it's called "It Smells Like a Search and Rescue" because after the last search <laughs> rescue, I went in my truck. Man, was it bad! It's like I had three oh, of those green pine air fresheners, and that wasn't even cutting it. My mom's like, "What the hell?" So yeah, smells like a search and rescue. That's coming up. Um, but yeah, I, I, I use the wool sock and then I duct tape the hell out of it. So it's really insulated. And when I go out, I, I basically throw in boiling water. And uh, yeah. by the time I'm yeah. out there, you know, it's, it's tolerable and um, that works. And I also put the Nalgene's closest to my trunk, my body, and then I put my down puffy around it so that it's near my body heat. That can help too. So it's deep in the pack. And then I do have one smaller one that hangs in a uh, pouch by my chest. And in that pouch, I'll put hand warmers, you know, on top of the sock and the duct tape. So that couple little strategies. I, I never use uh, those camelbacks and those, those tubes with the water. Never. I never use those things. Those are no good. Yeah. Yeah. They're just too easy to freeze. And uh, I do the same thing. So Karen, basically I have like the, the 32 ounce big mouth Nalgene bottles. I put, I don't do put boiling water, but I'll put hot water from the tap and then I put them in a koozie. I got like a, I got the cheaper koozies that are on Amazon. So I tend to just, I think the nice koozies from outdoor research, you can kind of keep them outside your pack if you want, but I just put stuff in my pack and I just, it's a good excuse to stop and, and, and drink, but um, they usually will stay warm. It's, if it's crazy weather, then you, know, you got to keep an eye on it. But for the most part, that works pretty well. Um, and then the other thing, I, this is just my own personal thing, but I look at this as a safety device. I bring a thermos full of hot chocolate on every hike, and I do not drink it until... I have, you know, I'll have some when I get to the peak of whatever mountain I'm in, but I always keep at least half of it 
in my pack as a safety device because if you ever come across somebody hypothermic, the fastest way to get that person into a state where they're going to be able to move and function is to get hot liquids in them. And you're not going to be able to fiddle with your stove and do that. It's going to take some time. So having that thermos on with hot tea or hot chocolate or whatever it is, I look at that as a safety device that I'm using for myself and my party, or if I come across somebody that's in trouble, you can literally save somebody's life with a thermos full of hot liquid. And that's also, I mean, you didn't bring it up, but also one of the things that I found valuable was taking a wilderness first aid class. And that was one of the things that they talked about for hypothermia is having some sort of hot liquid, some hot liquid with sugar, and that's going to help people get back to a state where they're going to be able to make those decisions that they need to make. And one thing with hydration that's easier to tell with the snow and probably a little bit of TMI, but kind of watch the color of your urine because that's a good indicator of whether or not you are properly hydrated. And come up with ideas that help you to remember that you need to drink water. It's very easy to just keep going and forget that you need to rehydrate, but you need to find a system where you know, okay, now I need to hydrate. Now I need to hydrate, even if it's prehydrating, but you need to find a way so that you are able to get the fluids that you need in you. Yeah. And it's not just the color, it's the volume too. Like you should be able to spell your name in the snow every time you stop for a pee break. <laughs> well, you can do that. It's kind of harder for me. Anything you want to say about that, Stomp? Can you spell your name in the snow? I was trying to think of the longest name I could think of, like, I don't know, like Dukakis or something. We should do the name game. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, I couldn't resist that. So, all right. So we talked about traction. We've talked about backpacks. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about our water strategy. So this show is kind of setting the ground for the basics. Um, so I think the next thing that we want to talk about is ground insulation, sleeping bags, and um, then we're going to get into a little bit of heat management. But as far as ground insulation goes, I mean, for me, a standard, um, oh, my God, Thermarest, what are those called? The, the, the accordion. The Z-Rest. Yeah, yeah, the Z-Rest. So, Everybody should have that in there. The, you know, you strap it to the yeah. outside of your pack, it weighs nothing. And it's, it's useful for many different things. I'm lazy with that. I have to confess. Uh, you know, it's a, it, What do you do if you get to sit on the snow? Then I usually pull out my Gore-Tex, one of my Gore-Tex outer layers and sit on that. I, I've just sort of gotten the habit, and I think it's a, a search and rescue thing, because when you're carrying somebody, that damn pad on the back of your pack is banging and flopping into other people. So I think I've just been conditioned to not bring it unless I really have to bring it. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll tend to sit on something that's waterproof um, or like an object. Like in my pack, I have a box of batteries, so I'll sit on the box and make that work. You know what I mean? With like a waterproof box. Uh, but I, tr- I don't really... You can also cut up the disease rest and it's like have different pieces. Maybe put different pieces in your pack so you don't necessarily have this large thing yeah. on the back of your pack. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's like, so I, I think the advice I would give people is 
I always bring the full Z-Rest pad. It's great to sit, you know, you don't want to sit directly in the snow because it's going to lower your body temperature. So you got to do mm-hmm. something. Some people will sit on their backpacks. They'll sit on, you know, their their box of batteries. What? <laughs> they'll sit on a box of batteries? Anyway, we'll talk about that later. Um but to me, like the Z-Rest, it's so light and, and useful. And the thing about it is, is that when you're winter hiking, if something goes wrong, you know, 65% of the injury, injuries you'll see will be lower leg injuries. And it takes, you know, three, four hours for somebody to get to a rescue. The Having that pad there will insulate you against the ground. And it can be the difference between going hypothermic if you've got to sit directly on the ground and saving your life um so it's a very light easy thing to take and i think everybody should have it as an essential piece of gear um just so that you have a place to sit in the snow where and it's amazing like you see the difference like when you're sitting on that you're like there's you don't feel the cold at all most of the time and you can also use it to make a splint yes true true so um, which brings me to my next. So you should have insulation to sit on and to sleep on just in an emergency. Um, even if you're doing a day hike, you, you, know, you use this to for safety for you and for anybody you might come upon, because not everybody brings these. Um, but sleeping bags. When when would you bring a sleeping bag on a day hike? I bring bivvies. I I will only bring bivvies during a day hike. If I'm doing an overnight backpack, I'll bring a sleeping bag. Um, yeah. I mean, between the, the, the clothing that we'll talk about, I think um, I would not be comfortable like Steve Mason talked about, but I would survive with uh, a heat-retaining bivy, which is teeny. It's like the size of my hand. So I don't generally take a sleeping bag unless I'm going overnight. Yeah, I have um, down pants, so I'll make sure that I have like down pants and a... Um, down jacket with me. For me, it's like so, sort of the size, but I think that I am now going over to bringing a smaller um, sleeping bag with me just so that there is something for um, insulation. And with the bivvies, I always tell people, make sure you have some sort of ventilation because they are vapor barriers. So yes, it is keeping you warm, but you need to have some ventilation so that you're not soaking wet in the bivy. Because mm. yeah. people are like, oh, I don't have a, a warm enough sleeping bag. And they'll put the bivy over the bag and then they wake up soaking wet because mm-hmm. even if you just drape it over the bag, it's holding that vapor in there and everything's going to get wet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I don't generally bring a sleeping bag, but I've done a few times I've done it. If I'm bringing, if I'm going with somebody new and they're less experienced and we're going long and it's really cold out, like when, if it starts getting below like 10 degrees, you know, in that zero degree, minus 10 degree, sometimes I'll bring my sleeping bag just as a safety, um, mm-hmm. uh, a safety tool if, if need be, because I'm always thinking in terms of like, okay, if we got a, if we got a bundle up for eight hours, like we need to be comfortable. But most of the time, like if it's, if it's sketchy at most, I'll bring like a 45 degree quilt with my emergency bivy figuring like I can mix and match those two together and, and survive for six or eight hours if I need to wait out or rescue or something. So mm. it depends. But most of the time I'm just bringing the bivy. Yeah. For a day hike anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so we've got, I think, the last bit here is the big one. So boots. 
<laughs> so again, I get all my information off of Section Hiker. So whatever Phil reviews, that's typically what I'll pick from. But you know, you've got winter hiking boots, mountaineering boots, and pack boots. Karen, can you talk a little bit about this? I mean, you work at the at the 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 shoe outfitter at REI, so you're the expert. Um, I haven't worked in boots in a while, but I can tell you that they change every year. So if you have a model that you love, they're probably not going to have that model the next year. Some models do stay, like the Sorel um, pack boots. Those have been around forever. They work. I use them for shoveling out the car. They're great boots and they're warm, but for me going out and hiking, they're just too big and the traction on the bottom if you're going to bare boot the traction on the bottom is not that great in them you can get um, micro spikes on them but for me that's just too much of a boot for um, a lot of what I do but they do keep you um, very warm um, in terms of insulation if you're going out on a longer hike particularly when it's colder I would go with 400 insulation because your feet are going to get cold and if your feet are cold you're not going to have a good experience make sure you have some good wool socks to go into those boots and even bring a change of socks because if your socks get wet you're they're not going to protect your feet as well your feet are going to get cold and you're going to have issues from that and from all the boots that i've seen the vast majority of them are waterproof, but you do want to make sure when you're looking, when you're researching a boot, whether you're on REI.com, um, another gear site, or you're on Section Hiker, make sure that they are waterproof because especially as you get later into the season or if you have a um, freeze-thaw cycle, there's more of a chance that there's you're going to be going through water. You want to make sure that your boots are staying dry. Got it. And do you have like two or three brands for women that you recommend? I love my oboes. I have had nothing but luck with them. I have the 200 and the 400, um, the Bridger models. The 200 is lower on the ankle. The 400 is higher on the ankle. And they've just kept my feet warm. They've worked very well. I've had some North Face that were that I found to be um, very good. Um, try on as many shoes as you can because so shoes like the Oboes and the Keens are going to have a wider toe box. Others are going to have a more narrow toe box. So you do need to try them to see what's going to fit your foot, especially if you're going to be wearing a thicker type of sock. Got it. And then Stomp, what is your, uh, what's your boot recommendations? Um, I try to push the um, the three season boots as long as possible, just because I tend to run hot. So I'm a, I'm an anomaly, but I I've started wearing um, leather boots um, through the colder portions of the year, and my go tos are the A Solos, the uh, Powermatic GTX. I think they are, but I also have a uh, a set of Danners, which I break out for rescue missions, which. I believe they're made out in uh, Washington or Colorado somewhere, but they are beautiful leather, winter, thinsulated boots, waterproof, beautiful. Check them out. Danners do make a really awesome. good boot as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're gonna pay for it, but I think you're gonna pay for 
uh, a better boot no matter what. Yeah, and I think I've talked about this before, but I have, um, I again, it's 400 gram Thinsulate is pretty much what you want to look for. And I have Keen Revel 4s, I think they are. I got them last year, so I'm hoping I'll have them for the next few years. But I like them a lot. They're definitely like a... a a burly heavy boot but i you know i stay dry in them and i think the one th- one other thing that i will tell people about boots is especially when you get in the 400 gram thin slate boots you don't necessarily need a big heavy sock you know if it's 20 degrees you, you can get away with like a, a mid-weight or even a liner sock inside the 400 gram thin slate and one of the benefits of doing that is if you load up on socks you can affect the circulation inside the boot and you can actually get cold because you're not circulating inside the boot. So you want to keep no question, you know, a little bit of spacing in there so that you're, you're staying warm because if you cut off that circulation, you'll be screwed. And that's why it's important to try on the boots because if you have a wider foot and you get a narrow boot, you're going to have discomfort and your feet are not going to stay as warm. Like you said. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've covered a lot here. So we've covered, you know, we talked about traction. We've talked about trailhead stuff. We've talked about some basic safety things. We've talked about boots, pack size, water strategy. I think the, and we're not going to get to search and rescue news here, Stomp. So we'll, we'll save that for the next episode. But I think the last thing we wanted to hit on is this whole theory about heat management. So Stomp, do you want to, want to start with, you know, how, what that is and, and what people need to think about when it comes to heat management? Yeah. Well, it, when you exert, your body increases in temperature and it has to cool off by exerting heat and that you're, you're sweating. And um, heat management means how do you get rid of that heat and moisture while you're hiking in more adverse uh, extreme temperatures? And, um, you know, the biggest problem would be if your clothing gets wet, then what are you going to do? Then you're dealing with hypothermic uh, potential. So, you know, essentially there are different phases. Karen, you touched upon it. When you're first starting out, you may be wearing two or three layers of clothing, but once your body starts warming up and expelling all that heat, then you have to start to change your layers and remove different layers and adjust to accommodate for those changes. Everybody runs differently. I think it's an individual thing, but I think the basic foundation of it is, you know, starting heavier and then changing, going lighter as you're moving. And then when you're stopping, you know, resupplying with food or water is to layer up again so you're not getting cold. But the big point is to watch out for that sweat buildup on your clothing. And I think it does take time to figure out how to make all those systems work and also figure out what clothing is going to work for you. Absolutely, And even... What I've started doing is I'll carry an extra shirt because there are times when even if I just have my shirt on, I'm exerting so much energy that I'm wet. And I know, and usually it's, I'm not going someplace, you know, where it's very, very cold, where I'm not able to um, quickly change clothes. But sometimes if I'm going to a hut, I'll have another shirt just so that I have mm-hmm. another dry shirt to put on so that I'm not going to continue hiking in something that's wet. Yeah, and that was the biggest thing for me is when Jonathan sat me and Tom down to sort of show us the ways of winter hiking. I remember him saying it's a, 
it's not about staying warm as much as it is about staying dry and regulating your your sweat. So you know, it, it'll take a little bit of time. Like you do want to start off, you know, you don't want to freeze to death, but pretty, it's pretty common where if it's like 20 degrees, like I'll just start off with like a light, you know, quarter zip long sleeve shirt. Cause I know within a mile or so I'm going to start sweating. So, you know, you got to make that choice, but it's very common where you'll, you'll start off fully dressed. And then within a half a mile, you got to stop and take off some gear. So once you start feeling yourself sweating, that's when you really want to, um, you know, make sure that you you take layers off. And we'll we'll cover next week. We'll cover from head to toe all of the clothing that we use and sort of the strategies around why we use it. And you know, we'll talk about some additional accessories as well uh, to get you geared up. But I feel like we've covered a lot here. Is there anything, Stomp or Karen? Did, did we miss anything on the topics that we we wanted to cover? Just a little tip that I've picked up over the years when it comes to all that wet clothing you're stripping off, have a plastic bag or a section in your pack that separates it from your dry clothing. That's really important. Yeah, dry bags, um, even if it's a Ziploc Mm. bag, is always good to have. Um, And especially in winter, line your pack with that trash compactor bag because you're putting your pack down in the snow and you want to make sure that the stuff that's going to keep you warm and dry does not get wet and by just having that little liner in there keeping your stuff dry that's going to help you out a lot that's a a debate like um see i prefer having a dry bag inside my pack rather than the pack cover pack covers just make no sense to me yeah I've, i've never understood the pack covers that's why i just go to the trash compactor bag and yes i still use the um dry bags just as sort of that little fail safe and yeah. i like to have all my stuff yeah, organized I, so you know i know where i know where things are i just assume my pack's going to get wet there's nothing you can do about it so how do you protect it inside dry bag simple yeah and a battery yeah. box <laughs> exactly so so this is good stuff so so karen was this as was was this as difficult as you thought or what what do you think natural um I, I've been doing this I and I did something for teaching too. And I think it's yes. just teaching with the kids <laughs> so that, you know, this is, this is something I actually mm-hmm. enjoy and people are more receptive and they're not, you know, thinking, great, yeah, exactly. when is lunch? It's like, when do we get out of here? That type of thing. So what, she, what she's saying is she's talking to a couple of kids right now. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. But no, nicer kids. Yeah, but I, I'm so kids. so glad that you joined us. Like, I think it was awesome, and uh, you know, we we covered everything. And it's hard to cover all of this stuff in a lot of detail. But we'll we're going to be putting all this information up in the show notes. We're going to be adding some information onto the Slasher Podcast website about winter hiking, and then stop. We should probably like we should probably put up like a, a hiking buddies like slasher intro to winter pod, winter hiking hike or something we'll have to figure something that's out that's a great idea I know I've been talking to a few people that listen like about group hikes and stuff but that'd be fantastic yeah yeah. We'll, so we'll figure that out but but we're running late this is the longest show we've ever done so Karen thank you so much thank you Karen so, that was great thank you thank you so much Good. for having me this was so much fun yeah yeah and Stomp thank you for uh, staying awake I know it's been tough you've been doing some rescues but we'll hit the search and rescue news and get all those cool stories in, uh, in the next couple of episodes but until next time we will uh, we'll see you see you then alright bye bye
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks.